And if you understand the joke, a neutrino passed through a bar, you're a geek. Yes, that's the end of the joke. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. They once more into the breach, dear friends. Hell's filled the wall up with our English dead. Uh, good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome back to another exciting episode of The Personal Wealth Coaches. Exciting for us anyway, and that we can't hear bumper music. We don't know if we're on the air. Who cares? We're going to talk anyway. This is yeah. The Personal Wealth Coach. I'm Jake McClure. Um, and this is Jeff McClure. Together we are bald. Right. And bearded. And bearded. Yes. Right. Uh, those are part of our disclosures. Uh, we are going to talk to you today about personal finance and macroeconomics and behavioral finance and other extremely boring to five-year-old conversations. Uh, so please get your uh, insomnia-proof uh, shorts on because uh, we're about to put you to sleep. <laughs> but before we do that, we need to put you to sleep with disclosures. Uh, this is the Not Personal Wealth Coach. It is not just the name of the program, however. It is also the name of the firm of the two The two co-hosts are the principals of this firm called The Personal Wealth Coach, which is an investment advisory firm registered with the SEC to give fiduciary advice uh, in the best interest of the clients, which is not what we're doing on the radio. We can't give you advice that's in your own best interest on the radio because we don't know you. Or if we do, we don't know it's only you that's listening. And just because we give investment advice and are registered through the SEC doesn't mean that the SEC particularly likes us. It doesn't also mean that they dislike us. Those are good disclosures. So basically what I'm saying is that our relationship with the SEC is purely formal and it has no um, uh, fatherhood figure of them patting us on our bald heads. There. Um we also are not giving investment advice on the air. We're giving education on the air because if we gave investment advice on the air, it would be illegal. Everybody would be able to hear it, and they would know what you were investing in, and that wouldn't be very kind. Um, do you want to give your, your deeming disclosure? Well, yes. The information that we're presenting on this educational program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the reliability or completeness of said information. And it is literally said information. It isn't written information. So right. I think it's cool. Yeah. So, and we give no guarantee or warranty as to the completeness of unsaid information. We also really? give no guarantee or warranty as to the completeness of said information. So there's no well, guarantees I, or warranties about anything. I will warranty and guarantee the incompleteness of any information unsaid. Any unsaid information will be unwarranted as being uh, completely invalid. Yes. Uh, and my mama said, if I ain't got anything good to say, don't say anything at all. It's so, not actually the way she said it. No, no, it isn't. I, she, I, doesn't, she, she doesn't have sounds, that accent. No, you're right. right. Um, the last thing to tell you is that we do not pay for this airtime. We pay nothing for the airtime. We're also not paid for the airtime. So it is not a paid commercial program. Many financial Radio programs are just paid time. We're not selling anything. Hopefully, we're just trying to give education. Uh, we There is well, a minor quid pro quo. 
we do buy advertising on the station for this radio program. But we are trying to sell something. The studio also buys advertising on their own radio station for our radio show. Uh, what what are we trying to sell? Us. Us? We're selling spaghetti. Yeah. Right. No. We're basically saying that a lot of our clients listen to this radio program. Yeah. And it's a nice way to have a one-way conversation with our clients. They seem to like it, so we keep doing it. There, there's and, obviously yeah. some mental issues with our clientele that they will sit and listen to these two bald guys ramble on about things that are just digital in most respects. Uh, but, hey, it works. So what happened this week in the market? Well, actually, it was a really interesting week in the market if you're a geek, and I am. So I am, I've been a geek a long time. I've gotten very good at it. I, I think um, I'm more of a nerd than a geek, but I might be both. Well, it's entirely possible. The yes. only people that debate about the difference between nerds and geeks are nerds and geeks, which means that we qualify immediately by the very debate that we're doing. Right. <clears throat> Thank you. And if you understand the joke, a neutrino passed through a bar, you're a geek. Yes, that's the end of the joke. <laughs> <laughs> all right okay what happened in the market this week well the the s&p 500 stock index rose 1.13 percent for the week which doesn't sound very impressive but it is first off every time it does something like this i multiply it times 52 and realize that that would be one heck of a rise if it just kept doing that every week if we annualize that week but more importantly the S&P 500 crossed through a magic line that the people who are market strategists see as an indicator. It's kind of like an inverted yield curve is an indicator we may be going to have a recession. A severely inverted real yield curve is more likely that we'll have a recession. There's no guarantee. Well, one of those indicators happened this week. There's something called a 200-day moving average, which in about 80% of the cases or better, tells you which way the market's going to go thereafter in the immediate future. When the, it's, it's the 200 days of average uh, prices on the S&P 500, the average obviously moves gradually over time as the market goes up or down, and it's a moving average. And when the S&P 500 falls below the 200-day moving average, very consistently, it keeps falling from there. Why? Well, there are people who've written PhD uh, dissertations on behavioral finance to explain that, and none of them agree completely on that. So I won't. I, I want. I'm not going to too terribly guess at why, but it happens. The other side of that is actually the 300-day moving average is a better indication on the downside of the market. But the 200-day moving average on the upside of the market, when the, when the stock market goes above the 200-day moving average, which it has this week, and stays there for a couple of weeks, historically, at least for the last 50 years or so, has indicated that good times are ahead in the market. And it crossed that line. Now, does that mean that good times are ahead in the market? No, it means that there's one indicator out there that says there may be good times ahead in the market. And it's a pretty consistent indicator. It's kind of like the inverted yield curve is for recessions. So it, when it crossed, it's above, it's 4071.70, 4071.70. That's where the S&P 500 is. And, and I like to watch those numbers. The 4,000 line is kind of a psychological barrier. If it stays above that 4,000 line for a while, that's a strong indication 
that things could be better going forward. Now, let me put a big caveat on that. External events have been driving the stock market since 2020. External events like a pandemic cannot be forecast by the yield curve and wasn't, by the way. So that we had a bear market without an inverted yield curve preceding it because we had a pandemic. Invasion of Ukraine and the chop off of a very significant portion of the supply of oil and grain to the world cannot be forecast by yield curves or moving averages. So things happen that can set things up completely outside of the indicators. But the indicators are looking pretty positive in the market is what we're trying to say. We're going to continue to watch this. No, we're not stating this with any certainty, but we're going to continue to watch it. It's now up 13.66%, rounded to 14% from its low point in mid-October. So in about six weeks, the S&P 500 has risen almost 14%. That's critical. Why is it critical? Because that's where the money is made or not made. The pe- Somebody who decided, and obviously a lot of people did back in mid-October, it's over, I'm out of here, which is why I hit a bottom. Just lost 14% of gain. Now, will that gain hold? That's the big question. It's still down 14.6% from where it was when the year began at its high. And I'm very pleased to report that the Standard & Poor's 500 stock index is now 82% higher than it was in March of 2020 when a lot of people got out of the market. And it's up about 30% than it was three years ago. Now, what does that amount to? That's that's about a 9.47% average annual rate of return for the last three years. So where the stock market is, and, and everybody that I talk to says the market is down. Well, if you're looking at a three-year picture, the market's not down. It's up. It's up very nicely. It's up more per year than its long-term average. And yet people feel like it's down, which value investors love when that happens because they like to get into the market. We follow another index, the CRSP U.S. Mid-Cap Value Index, because we like mid-cap value uh is that part of the market we just kind of like that uh it 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 closed out at 2452.27 for anybody who tracks such things that's up about 0.57 for the week which really sounds unimpressive but it's only down 5.58% now from its high in January so that's not much of a dip in other words from the perspective of somebody investing in mid-cap value stocks, the index, if they invested in an index fund there, for example, the most of the bear market is over with for them, and they're looking pretty good. Anyway, so yield on the 10-year U.S. Treasury note, which we report on, that's, that's the benchmark. We call it a benchmark. A lot of uh, interest rates are set according to the 10-year U.S. Treasury note, um, and it's generally a proxy for the entire bond market. It declined. It followed the, the stock market, and, and it, as, as the interest rate, the yield declined 5%. Why did I say it stopped following the stock market? Stock market went up. Well, when interest rates go down, bond values go up. So bonds and stocks this last week, as they have been doing all year, moved in the same direction. There's an old myth, rule of thumb on Wall Street and among financial advisors and so on, that a mixture of stocks and bonds will smooth out the portfolio. Well, it sure hadn't done a bit of good this year. Because bonds fell when stocks fell, and bonds rose when stocks rose, and that's still going on, and it went on. It's just steadily going on. And in fact, for except for a relatively short period of time, well, relatively short, a couple of decades, uh, in the late 20th century, they pretty much have not balanced each other out very well. 
So anyway, it uh, it is the interest rates declined at the 10-year point. The yield curve is still pretty severely inverted. What do I mean by that? The ten, if, if you bought a treasury security that matures 10 years from now, you would be looking at a yield of 3.51% to maturity. Okay. Uh, that'd be your average yield to maturity. But a two-year note, if you bought one uh, that was maturing in two years, it'd be 4.25. And the 90-day T-bill has a yield of 4.33. So when really short expected maturities have much higher interest rates than longer maturities like 10 years, that's called an inverted yield curve. And generally, historically, not every time, certainly not every time, again, about 80, 85% of the time indicates a recession is coming. It may not this time. Uh, and there's some pretty good reasons for that. And we can talk about it later, maybe. Yeah. Uh, and intermediate text. Let me, let me quick throw this in there. That was very dry. Uh, when you get a loan or make a loan for a short term, usually you charge less interest than if you're going to lock your money up for a long term. You want to charge more because you got a larger risk for, for loaning your money out for longer. And most people recognize that when they're looking at car loans or, or mortgages. So usually the 15-year is less than the 30-year. And if you're going to get a 10-year mortgage, that's way less than a 30-year. It's not acting that way across all bonds right now. Yeah. Um, and the and reason that for that is because they're running out of short-term money to loan. So the interest rates are really high. They charge more for it when there's less of it to loan. I recently purchased a small RV. I paid mostly cash for it, but I borrowed some of the money. And it was interesting to me that if I got a five-year loan to pay it off like it would for a car, the interest rate that they wanted to charge me was higher than if I got a 15-year loan. And of course, I can make higher payments and pay off the 15-year loan in five years, but they they were offering a much lower interest rate for a 15-year loan than they were for a five-year loan, which I think it's the first time I personally encountered that in the in the real world market, but it's on, it's going on out there anyway. Petroleum, West Texas Intermediate crude uh, seems to be indicating that the economy will remain strong. Why do we say that? Because the price went up about nine percent to eighty dollars a barrel. What does that mean? Well, there wasn't any news of restricting supply anywhere across the board. In fact, there was news of lowering prices uh, with a price cap on Russian yeah. oil. So to have uh, our oil prices go up, it, it means that the people are expecting a stronger economy in the future. Yeah, in, in the futures market, the price of oil went up across the board going out as far as the futures market goes. And that is an indication that they expect the demand for petroleum to rise into the future, at least globally. So there's a lot of conflicting signals out there. And one side of the market, the inverted yield curve is saying, oh, a recession is coming. Demand is going to fall off. Everything's going to fall apart. And we can talk about some other indicators that I think are important during the show today. But on the other, on one side, we have this series of indicators that say there's a recession coming. Things are going to get bad. And then sometimes even in the same report, we get a series of indicators that say the economy is booming and it and looks like it's going to continue to grow healthily for the next several years. It is a, we're at a very, in, in my limited experience of only about half a century uh, observing the market seriously, uh, it's unique to me. And I 
we didn't, unfortunately, 100 years ago, they weren't keeping as good a records as I would prefer them to keep on what goes on in the economy and the market. I, I sent the it, memo back to them, but they haven't, oh, you answered, they haven't answered me yet. It looks like 100 years ago, something similar may have happened, but we didn't. We don't have enough good records to say this for sure. But we're, we are definitely in an unusual, in my experience and in the lifetime experience of the people who participate in the markets today, a very unusual situation. Uh, we have been for several years now. And we have to look for the signs that are consistent and showing up in there. And that's what, yeah, that's the markets. Well done. Shall we? Well, I want to talk about something you, you have coined a term, the cattail effect. I want to term something. I want to coin a new term, the slosh effect. Oh, I haven't heard this one before. This sounds good. Go ahead. If you have a container of water or liquid of any kind, and it's in a truck or you're carrying a bucket, doesn't make any difference. And you slosh it one way because you hit a bump in your truck, for example, and then you're on smooth pavement again. The water doesn't stop sloshing. It continues to flip back and forth from side to side and continues to slosh. Now, if you hit another bump and it's in harmony with the slosh, the slosh will get worse. If it's out of harmony, then the slosh gets less worse. So water in any liquidity tends to slosh from side to side and keep on sloshing thereafter for some time. That's going on in the economy right now. When the COVID epidemic hit, epidemic, pandemic hit, and it disrupted a lot of things around the world. It cut off money supply. It cut off people's spending. It stopped a flow. Uh, it was a slosh effect. It caused the money to rock back into savings as opposed to continue to be spent. And the other thing it did is we, across the board around the world, major corporations, major nations, everything, were operating under a system called just-in-time. They had gotten rid of their warehouses and things they, for warehousing. They were using transportation, the container ships and the trucks and the trains. So that when they ordered a bunch of stuff, which is what economics, economics calls goods. Stuff. Like if there's goods, shouldn't there be bads if there's goods? Anyway. Um, yes, I'm, I'm ordering a bunch of bads today. Well, it could be in German that's bads. Yes. Anyway, yeah. the, uh, so the, the point is the slosh effect continues. Um, and it's been sloshing back and forth. Why do we have inflation? Because a lot of money got balled up in one place and not being spent, and now it's being spent. Uh, yes, governments added during the period when people weren't spending money, added to things so that we wouldn't have a depression, which would be increasing the slosh. And and we're working our way through that. But a big, but that really, if you look at the quantity of money that was pumped into the economy by the government programs, the stimulus programs, and you look on at, at the amount of money that was excess savings, you suddenly discover there's a lot more excess savings than the government pumped in there, a lot more. Why? What happened there? Well, what happened was people, when they were staying home and not going out because they were afraid they would catch COVID, didn't spend their money. And they socked it away and they were scared and they socked more of it away. And now they're spending through that money. And when, the, when there's a lot of money to be spent and a limited number of things to buy, we get inflation. And that's what we're getting right now. Why are there a limited number of things to buy? Well, we've largely returned in the supply chain to normal. We're not there yet. Why are we not there yet? Because China is still fighting COVID and it's fighting COVID in a very inefficient manner 
instead of using vaccines, by the way, they have refused to use the U.S. and European vaccines that work so well, the mRNA vaccines. They want to only use their own vaccine, which doesn't work well and is pretty much ineffective against the newer versions of, of, uh, of COVID. So they have a legitimate concern over there, and their economy is slowed down, so they're not supplying the things to the world that, that they used to supply. So we still have a little bit of a supply shortage. And then we have Russia invading Ukraine, creating a supply shortage in oil and in food. At the same time, we have excess money in the Western economies to buy things with. So we get inflation. And that slosh is continuing. Now, what will happen, and I'm going to make a go out on a limb and make a forecast here. Sometime in the next two years, the excess savings will get spent. And spending will slow down dramatically and interest rates will still be high. And we will teeter into probably a minor recession and the Federal Reserve will start cutting rates. But that may be a couple of years out. It may be as much as four years out. Uh, Nobody knows how fast people will spend the excess money. We do have a handle on it to some degree. Moody's does at least. Uh, Moody's uh, Economics uh, came out and said that we had about something in the vicinity of $2.3 trillion in excess savings. What's excess savings? Personal savings. I'm not talking about corporations. $2.3 trillion more in savings than consumers had in savings before the pandemic. Now, the numbers are not as precise right now. Somewhere between $1.2 and $1.8 trillion of that is left. Wages are rising about as fast as inflation on average, but people are spending more money than they're making. Well, that means they're running up big debts. Well, they're running up some debts, but not big debts. They're basically spending down their savings and they're getting their credit card balances back up where they're comfortable with them. Some people, and to me, this is a little odd, but some people are uncomfortable with too low of a credit card balance. And some people are very uncomfortable with a lot of extra money in their savings accounts. And they feel like they deserve something or they want something. And when you combine a lot of extra credit or savings with the fact that jobs are so easy to get that the thousands and thousands of people who've been laid off by the big tech firms in most cases didn't show up to apply for unemployment insurance because they were able to get another job the next day, often with better pay than they had before. So jobs are very easy to get. Pay is very good. Um, People are spending money like there's no tomorrow. And they will probably continue to do so until they reach a level of discomfort. What it's it, that stops them. They're 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 very comfortable. They'll continue to spend and reward themselves until they hit the point where their credit card payments are high enough and their savings are low enough that they become uncomfortable again. And then they will stop spending so much. And when they stop spending so much, traditionally, what's happened is interest rates are still high at that point, and it's about then that employers start laying people off. And about then, we go into a recession. Now, the Federal Reserve, thank God, is the, the members of the board are very familiar with this cycle that we traditionally go through. And the, the challenge they face, which is a real serious challenge, is how to raise interest rates enough to slow things down, to dampen, uh, to dampen inflation, to dampen the demand before inflation becomes entrenched. What, I mean by, what do I mean by entrenched inflation? Before People get used to getting a 10% raise every year, and it's just automatic because when people get used to getting, and I'm using the term 10% loosely, people have been get, are getting about a 5% raise every year right now uh, or 
But if you're used to getting a 6% raise every year, and in one year you don't get a raise, as far as you're concerned, your pay went down. So the Federal Reserve has to stop prices going up before people get in the habit of getting raises every year, which causes price to go up. And because the prices go up, they want to get a raise every year. And that reinforces itself. And we had that happen in the late 70s and early 80s. And that's what the Federal Reserve is trying to stop. Unfortunately, it means we've got to raise unemployment. We have to uh, dampen the availability of jobs. We have to stop wages from being raised on a regular basis. And that's all very unpleasant to the people who are getting it, although we're starting to see it happen now. Uh, but it's a necessity to keep us from spiraling into inflation. And that's a long soliloquy on my part. And that's what I wanted to talk about. Okay. And there's a nice little reference to the 1980s here that is helpful in what you're talking about. When people get paid and you get this entrenchment concept, uh, there's a great example of that in National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, Chevy Chase movie from the late 1980s, but it's kind of taking place in the early 80s. And that is, they don't get a Christmas bonus. A bonus is supposed to be on top of your normal pay. But if you get a bonus every year, you expect that bonus. And because you expect that bonus, if you don't get the bonus, it's like getting a pay cut. And that's not what the word bonus means, but that's how entrenchment happens. So it's worth taking a look at that movie. I'm not recommending you go and kidnap your boss by any stretch, but uh, if you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually do give customized uh, for our individualized clients investment advice and portfolio management, and you can reach us uh, locally. We have voicemail waiting on the weekends, but real life people during the week, no phone tree at 254-947-1111 or 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com if you prefer, where you can read our newsletters, sign up for our newsletter, read what they said years ago to see if how accurate we were. Uh, there are... Radio program is there as well, and you can find the podcast anywhere that podcasts are provided. You can contact us through our contact form or directly through email at jeff at tpwc.com and or jake at tpwc.com. And we actually read those things. Strange, I know. Uh, in the meantime, thank you very much for listening to uh, Two Bald Boring Men Talk About Finance. And until next hour, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.